Thanks, Jessica. Well, hi. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Thanks for being here on this Sunday. It's great to be with you. Um, if you haven't yet, please crack open your Bible to Matthew 25. That's where we're at. If there's any confusion, I think there were a few errors in the branch notes. I apologize for that. It's my fault. Um, uh, Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So it's what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Uh, so what comes into your mind when you think about God? What comes into your mind? Is he a, is he a loving father? Or is he like a disappointed dad? Is he a, a distant and unknowable God? Or is he really near, but he's quite small and uh, helpless? Can't really do much. Maybe he's like a shoulder to cry on. That's about it. What do you think about when you think about God? What comes into your mind? You know, it's interesting how when you, uh, you first meet a person, you know, for the very first time, and uh, you know them a certain way, but then if you continue your relationship with that person over time, your understanding of who that person is really develops. And if you're anything like me, you're really bad at remembering names. And so for years, especially when the branch first started, I would meet people and they'd be like, hey, let's, you know, let's get coffee or something. And I'd put their name in my phone. And I was so naive just to put like a first name in there. And then years later would pass and I'd go look at my phone and I'm like looking up somebody's name and I'm, you know, I'm looking for a John or something and I open up someone's contact just says John. I'm like, who's this guy? You have no idea. So I began to actually put in people's last name. That still didn't help me that much. So I started to put in like notes in that little memo line. You know what I'm talking about? Normally it says like what company they work for. For me, that's just a place to add notes. The other day I called uh, Mark Graham. Okay, I called Mark. Uh, Mark's an intern here. I know Mark really well now too well. And uh, we went overseas together, all these things. And I look, I, call, I look to call Mark and it says, Mark Graham, OSU student, Mrs. Graham's son. So what it says in there, Mrs. Graham, if you don't know, is iconic. Okay. It's obviously Mark's mom. Okay. And uh, she was my kid's kindergarten teacher the first two years. And so I just looked at that and I was like, how interesting, how funny is that? You know, that I used to know Mark in a way that she was just Cheryl Graham's son that he was just a student at Oregon State, and now I know Mark, and I mean, I don't, whatever, yeah. I, <laughs> I know a lot more about Mark, okay? I've known him a lot better, okay? It's developed over time. The same is true with our relationship with God, isn't it? Isn't it? All right, well, what comes to your mind? What's in the memo line? What's in the memo line? God is Savior, God is friend, God is your comfort, yep, uh-huh, check. Well, what about God is your master? You might say, Josh, uh, no one tells me what to do, right? Well, today we were actually told that he is your master. Like he is. He is. And if he's not, then one day you will clearly see how big of a mistake it is to not know him as such. So the question is, if he is a master, which he is, the question then becomes, is he a good one? Is he a good one? It's like that iconic dialogue in Narnia between Susan and the beaver. You know this one, right? Where uh, the beaver's describing Aslan to Susan. He says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And she goes, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? 
I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, and the beaver said, safe. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. He's the master, I tell you. See, today we see clarified for some of us that Jesus is our master. Some of you have that in the memo line of your phone, right? But for some of us, it's, it's part of our understanding of God that we really, really must add and, and come to grips with. But it's a really joyful thing to come to grips with. I hope you'll see. So we're just going to look at a few things in this passage you'll see on the screen behind me. We're just going to look at what the master does in this parable. What does he do? And then what do the servants do? And then I simply want to ask, how are we intended to respond to this? And I think there's really two specific things that we need to respond to. First thing we see is what does the master do? What is he doing here in this parable? Read with me in verses 14 and 15. It says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. There's like a reckoning, okay? Chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew are this entire section of Scripture that you kind of need to understand this parable within the broader scope of it. It's really meant to be understood together. And these two chapters have quite honestly stumped a lot of scholars and theologians for centuries uh, and caused a lot of debate. But both chapters of Matthew are talking about the return of Jesus, and Jesus is telling people early on in chapter 24 the signs to be looking for, stuff like that, you know? And uh, basically, Matthew's talking about the return of Jesus and what will happen when he returns. That's what it's all about, these two chapters. So the gist of the context of this parable is this. Jesus is coming back. Be ready. That's literally what these two chapters are telling you. He's coming back. Be ready. Right? His return is actually scheduled on the calendar of this world as a real future event that will take place. And we look at this in verse 31. If you want to look down at verse 31, it says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Guys, Jesus is coming back to destroy all evil, and He's going to set up His glorious throne forever. And on that day, all possibility of repentance and change will end. We will be what we will be. We will stand before God, and we will report in. So the question is, how then should we live now? How should you and I live right now? And that's the question that Jesus is answering in this parable. He's saying, that's coming, so how should you live now? Right? That's, that's Matthew 25. And here we see that Jesus likens the kingdom of God, which we've said already as we've gone through some of these parables this summer, that all these parables are about the kingdom of God, okay? And he likens the kingdom of God to a man who goes on a journey, Okay, he goes on this journey, and he calls all of his servants to himself before he goes on this journey, and he entrusts all of his things to them to, to steward these things while he is away. And he gives them varying amounts of talents, we are told, and we are told that he gives these talents, quote-unquote, according to their ability, okay, according to their ability, which this is really unfortunate, I think, in some ways for us, because this word is translated into English as talent, Okay. And we, especially when we hear the word talents were given according to their ability, you and I think, well, geez, I have no talent, you know, or I wish I had her talent, or I wish I had 
his talent or this is my talent, whatever it is, right? We think of basketball skills and dunking or like doing flips, you know, which is something I could never do and I wish I could or something, you know? Um, We think of playing the piano or talking in front of people or juggling or whatever. You know, we think of different things and like I can do that, I can't do that. But that's not at all what this is about, okay? The word talent here is actually a unit of money. And it was a lot of money, okay? It's a lot of money, a talent, okay? A talent was worth about... 20 years wage for a common worker. It's like a minimum wage worker. It was worth 20 years wage, just one talent. So the master here is putting huge sums of money in this parable into his servant's hands to do something with it. So if you want to know the amount, just to to feel the gravity of this a little bit, just take the example given in verse 15 of the master. He gives five talents to a guy, okay? That would be 20 years of minimum wage work. Just one talent is 20 years of minimum wage work. So Oregon, congratulations, everybody. Minimum wage just went up on July 1st to 11.25. You're all rich now, okay? So just if you, if you equate this out, if you work 40 hours a week for 20 years, right, at minimum wage, that's $468,000, okay? Real hard-earned money. You take that times five, that's $2.34 million, Okay? It's a lot of money, isn't it? Which for some of you, I don't know, maybe Mark Graham, that's not much, I don't know. Uh, But for the rest of us, that's a lot of money, isn't it? It's a lot of money. This amount is 100 times, 100 times your annual income as a minimum wage worker, okay? And in verse 21, it's a lot of money. In verse 21, the master calls this investment only a little. It's a ton of money. What does he call it? Just a little. Just a little. What's the point? Guys, the master is fabulously wealthy. That's the point. And he's really kind. And he entrusts his property, his, his money, his wealth, his talents with his servants. This is what the master does. He wants to pull his servants into his success. He pulls them into his joy by sharing with them his own resources. This is a really good boss, isn't it? This is a great boss. I mean, look at how he promotes his employees once he returns. He says, enter into the joy of your master. He says that in verses 21 and 23. He's not only this brilliant entrepreneur, so to speak, he also welcomes his employees into his personal life, and he shares his own joy with them. He shares his own happiness with them. He returns, and he says, come on into my home. Enter into my joy. Come on in, right? How about you come over this weekend? I'm going to buy you some gifts, right? I'm going to feed you an expensive dinner. We're going to play some yard games. You know, we can watch whatever movie you want on my enormous TV or whatever it is, right? I'm going to, I'm going to be having a blast. I'd love it if you came over and you enjoyed it with me, right? I want you to be there, right? That's a stretch for sure, but that's the idea. That's what this master does, okay? He takes all that he has and all that he is, and he gives a little to you if you're a servant, And then he invites you into his joy. You guys, God is a joyful God. He's a joyful God. And he invites you into his joy. I mean, do do you think about God this way? He's a joyful God. He invites you into his joy. He's a joyful God. Do you think about God this way? He is like that. He said so. Jesus is our master. We are his servants, and he's drawing us into his success and his joy. See, I was a, I was a slave. 
I was a slave to, to my sin. I was a slave to, to Satan. I was a slave to death, right? And he has bought me at a price not to just get me to work for him because God actually doesn't need me. He doesn't rely on me in the sense that if I fail, the world doesn't go spinning out of control. Instead, he buys me at the cost of the blood of Jesus, and then he commissions me actually to participate in what he's doing in the world, to live for things that matter, for the end goals that this world is headed towards. He is including me in being a part of that. This is total grace, complete grace. See, the worthless servant in this parable, he got one thing right and one thing only. He says, here, you have what is yours, verse 25. He got that right. That was God's. All that he had, that he had been given, it was God's. Do you see God this way? As an extremely wealthy, joyful, generous master. Do you see that literally all that you have, it comes from him. All that I have is God's. All that I have. My breath is God's. He gives me breath and life. He makes my heart beat. God gives me friends. He gives me friends to encourage me. He gives me that community. I was talking to Joshua Mentano this last week, just the other day, and he's been one of my dearest friends since I moved to Corvallis about 10 years ago, okay? God used both of us in each other's lives, and now our friendship isn't coming to an end, but our proximity to experience that friendship is. And we both realize, though, that apart from the generous grace of God in our lives, right? We wouldn't even be friends. And even if we were friends, we wouldn't be a blessing to each other. But God's given me someone like Josh and many other people, and, and God will give Josh other Joshes, so to speak, won't he? That's what God does. He's given me food. I mean, where do you think all of our food comes from? Who created the ingredients? God did, right? right? He's given me the experience of love, hasn't he? He's given me the ability to love. We are told that we love because he first loved us. He's given me the ability to hear and to see and to taste and to touch and to move and to laugh and to play and to think and to worship. I mean, come on, my gosh, you guys. He's given me everything. He's given me my job. I wouldn't be a Christian without him, so I definitely wouldn't be a pastor. You know, he gave you the ability to think and do the tasks that you do or hope to do for your vocation. He's given you that ability. All your money is from him. He owns it all. Do you see God this way? Do you see God this way? Do you see that all you have comes from him? This is what the master does. He gives. He entrusts. It's total grace. That's what the master does. What do the servants do with it? What do the servants do? Well, let's read from 16 on. It says, he who had received the five talents, what did he do? He went at once and he traded with them and he made five talents more. So also he who had the, f- the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. 
I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I have not scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own in interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For everyone who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant in the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me just point something out here. When we first read this parable, it feels heavy, doesn't it? Right? A little heavy? It's kind of intense. It is, isn't it? But don't miss the incredible grace of the master. Don't, don't miss the invitation into his joy. Don't miss how much he includes people in his wealthy work. The reason I say don't miss this is not merely because I just spent like 10 minutes saying that and I want to like support what I'm saying. Okay, that's not why I'm saying don't miss this. I'm saying don't miss this because that's exactly what the third servant missed and it cost him eternity. Don't miss that. But look at the first two servants. What do they do? They take what they've been given and they seek to multiply it. And it multiplies. Notice in this story that anyone who tries to invest the master resources multiplies it in some way. Anyone who does anything with the stuff that they've been given by God, something happens to it, okay? The only one who doesn't multiply it in any form is the one who buries it. And the understanding that you're supposed to take from this is that if you take what you have and seek to use it in any way to advance the kingdom of God in this world, then some return will come out of that because God's at work in that. Right, so servant wanted to invest. We notice here the one turns five talents into 10, the other turns two talents into four, and the master rewarded the risk and effort of these two servants. Well, what are they rewarded with? They're rewarded with the same thing. It's really interesting. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Kind of more responsibility, but really it's entering the joy of the master. That's the reward. This is huge, you guys. Notice something really important. As the same response is given from the master in verses 21 and verse 23, which maybe your like capitalistic mind goes, well, that's not fair. I mean, the one guy did more, didn't he? He reaped more benefit. Like, he got more back than the other guy. Like, that's not really right. Like, why the same reward? You know, that doesn't make any sense. It's identical language. Each is identically praised and welcomed into the master's joy. And this tells you something. But to this master, it's not the numbers that matter. It's not the things that matter. It's not the profit that matters. It's what? It's receiving from God what he's entrusted to me and seeking to leverage whatever that is or whatever amount that is into what he's called me to do with it until he returns. That's what he cares about. It's not really so much the result. It's the joyful obedience and the perspective that I have with my life with Jesus. Right? We, we see this stark contrast with the third servant. It really stands out. We see the third servant. What does he do? He did nothing. Why? He thought the task was too hard. He's lazy, right? We're meant to contrast this, I think, with the parable right before this one. In the parable of the ten virgins, we see Jesus, he's likened to a groom. He's like a groom, and here he's likened to a master. 
These are the contrasts. In the parable of the ten virgins before this, we see that these ten virgins go out and they wait for the groom to come. He delays in coming, and so only five of the virgins bring extra oil so their lamp can keep burning, okay? The other five bring no extra oil. That's this weird story for us, okay? But the virgins that had no extra oil, their, their light ran out. It's the middle of the night, so they get tired and sleepy and they fall asleep. The other virgins, the other five, they have extra oil, so they keep the lamp burning, so they're awake, right? And so this groom comes in the middle of the night while they're asleep. At midnight, he arrives, and the five who fell asleep, they miss out, okay? Another strange parable, right? What's the point? The five virgins who fell asleep, they thought waiting for the groom was going to be easier than it was. Here in this parable, the third servant thinks it's going to be harder than it was. So Jesus is saying, some of you think it's going to be way too easy, and you're going to fail. Some of you think it's way too hard. That's going to make you fail too. So the third servant is being chastised here. Why? Because he lost the talent? Not at all, right? He gave back what was given to him. He protected it well. He chastised because he didn't do anything with it. He risked nothing. Why did he do nothing with the talent that he was given? We're actually told why. He like gives his life explanation here in verses 24 to 25. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. What's he saying? What's he saying? Master, kind of a hard guy, right? Kind of stingy, right? You're kind of a tightwad. You put me to work, but where does that get me? You're going to take what you want anyway. You've got all the power. So here I am in business for you, but what do I get out of it? If I succeed, that profit's going to go to you. But if I fail, that blame comes to me and I'm supposed to be motivated. Here, take your talent. I protected it. Right, the one-talent servant didn't lose the money. He didn't spend it on himself. He just sat on it. He did nothing with it while he waited for the master's return. I wonder what you think about that. What do you think about that? We don't have to wonder what this master thought of it. You wicked and slothful servant. Verse 30, you worthless servant. Guys, these are strong words, and we need to face these strong words. You need to face them. That, that could be us. I mean, if the grace of God doesn't change us, it will be us. Well, what's the insight here? Well, it's this. We think our job in life is to avoid, like, the really big bad stuff, right, the really big bad sins maybe. We think our job in this life is to not do certain things. We often think that's what our job is. And as long as we're not doing those things and we just maintain, we're good. We're good. That's how we think. But look at this parable. This servant is judged not for the bad things he did, quote unquote, but for the things he didn't do. That's why he's judged. He didn't go out and do horrible things, he just sat on his opportunity and he failed to do the right things. He failed to do good things. Our job in this life is not to avoid doing things, but to do things. Right? Our job in this life is not to preserve what has been given to us, but to multiply what has been given to you. The, the bad servant wastes his opportunity and he ends up in hell. Verse 30, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place there will be not the master's joy, 
but the weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is just a reference to eternity apart from Christ, apart from God. Let that, let that shock you. Like, let it shock you. Let that make you wonder. I mean, has Jesus all of a sudden just like changed his gospel here? You know, he's always like, oh, grace, faith, all that stuff. And now he's like, yeah, you better do a good job. You know, is Jesus changing his story here? Is he now telling us that we have to work our way into heaven? No, he's saying that if we aren't living for him, there's a reason. If you aren't living for him, there is a reason, right? And the reason is we don't believe he's a good master and we feel safer keeping to ourselves and taking no risks for him. If that's true of us, he will say, you can have your petty little fearful life. You could have had me. I gave something of myself to you, but you completely misjudged me. You thought I was a hard man, someone to avoid. All right, you can avoid me forever. This is, this is scary because I see myself in the wicked servant. How about you? I mean, he could only see reasons for caution never for taking risk. He sees the master as this impossible to please, like, corporate warlord person. He doesn't deny the master. He doesn't go work for another master, but he won't do anything productive. Why? Because he's stuck in self-pity and fear, isn't he? He's not living by faith. He's not transformed by the gospel. He honestly believes that Jesus is a pretty bad boss to work for, and his wasted life is proving it. The master does not say to him, enter into less joy than these other guys. It's not what the master says. He says, get out. You don't even know me. Which is the same language that the parable after this one uses when Jesus stands up and separates the sheep from the goats. You never knew me. They thought they did. Do you you see this third servant proved to actually not be a servant after all, and that's why he's cast out. As I can call myself a Christian, or to use that language in the next parable, a sheep instead of a goat, but in the end, my life proves my identity. Like the fruit from my life proves who I am. It doesn't make me who I am, but it reveals who I am. Like if you walked up to me today and you're like, Josh, I'd love to get to know you. I don't know you. Tell me a bit about yourself. And I said, well, I'm, a, I'm an athlete, you know? And you looked me up and down. And you're like, oh, an athlete, huh? Like what do you compete in? I was like, well, you know, C-League softball you know, I'm pretty, pretty good at it. You know, I play a good first base or something, you know, and I dabble a bit in one-on-one with my five-year-old in the driveway, you know. Someone's going, hey, dude, I, good for you. I mean, a good American would be like, that's great, you know, but to their friends, they're like, that dude's not an athlete, right? Like, you would know that I'm not an athlete from the, the examples I've given you of my life. Why? Because, you know, athletes compete at high levels. They devote them, them, their lives to whatever it is that they're competing in. That's what an athlete is, right? If not, I'm just playing a game is what I'm doing. I'm not an athlete, right? If I say I'm a painter, but I never paint. If I say I'm a writer, but I never write. If I say I'm a student and I never go to class. If I say I'm a doctor and I never treat any patients. If I say I'm a reader, but yet I've never read a book, right? Am I really who I say I am? If I say I'm a servant of Jesus, but I'm the master of my own life. So here's the big question. What makes these servants different? Like what's the dividing line? What caused them such a dramatic difference in their lives? I mean, servants one and two live completely different than servant three, why? 
Well, it completely hinged on who they thought their master was. Do you see that? They lived their lives based on who they thought their master was. What do you think about God? That thought that comes in your mind is the most important thing about you, right? The first two servants have this sense of anticipation when their master returns. They're glad to see him. They've been looking forward to his return. Master, look, I've made five more. They knew their master was good. They didn't dread his return. They looked forward to it, and they lived like he was actually coming back. The third guy thought his master was a really harsh man. He states it plainly. He says, because I was afraid of you, I thought not losing was better than investing, and the master never actually corrects him. He just uses his words to, to kind of pose a question. Well, if you thought I was that way, why don't you at least invest it in the bank? He's kind of using his own ideas against him, right? Like, even like you weren't even motivated by fear, you know? You see, goodness and grace are way better motivators than fear. Notice how good the first two people think their master is, and it really motivates them in life. The next guy says, I was afraid, and it paralyzes him to do nothing. I mean, when we live by fear, all we're thinking is, what, what can I lose? When you're living by fear, you're just thinking of what you could lose. When you're living motivated by grace or by the goodness of God, you're thinking, I've already gained something that I ultimately want and need, and I actually can't lose it. So it's a way better motivating thing, isn't it? It's way more motivating. I think back to when I was dating my wife, and I was like really pursuing the heck out of her, and I was like in love with this girl, okay? And after like a year of dating, I, I took her to this like Nickel Creek concert and like the Coronado Island, and I you know, went on the beach, and I was like, Liz, I love you. And she was like, thank you, you know? <laughs> she just like, it wasn't, you know? And I, for that moment, I was like, oh, no, what's happening? You know, I was just so, like, spinning out of control internally, but I was keeping it together on the outside. It's fine, you, whenever you're ready, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, but I just looked back to that. I was like, man, when I was pursuing Liz, I was so motivated by fear. I just didn't want to lose her. So I was doing all these things to try to, like, woo her and, and win her, so to speak. But a few weeks later, I visited her. We went up to Mount Tabor. And she, you know, looked me in the eyes. It was a beautiful, starry night. She said, Josh, I love you, you know? That was amazing to hear that, just a matter of weeks later. But you know what happened? Something actually changed inside of me. Because all of a sudden, I knew she loved me. And then I didn't go, sweet, I don't have to pursue her anymore. It actually completely changed the way I pursued her. I loved her. I knew she loved me. But that fear was kind of gone. I just pursued her because I loved her. It was, it was a whole different motivating factor. It's the same is true what you see here in these servants. So the question is, how do you see the master? How do you see the master? See, living for Christ is either the opportunity of a lifetime or living for Christ is this pathetic slavery to you. So how do you see him? How you see him will determine how you live for him, and what you think about God is the most important thing about you then, isn't it? So how are we intended to respond to this? Two quick things. Number one, this parable, we are intended to respond in such a way that we live with the end in mind. As we are to live with the end in mind. Like all these decisions that you're making, the, the ways that you're processing anything in life, whether that's like change or pain or your joy, your hope, whatever it is, 
we process these things, we live with the end in mind. I often ask the question to myself, but really a lot of other people, and I've asked many of you in this room this question, just as I've been able to meet with you over time and stuff, and I often ask people, you know, at the end of this year, when you look back on your life, what is it that you would love to look back on and have seen God do? That's living with the end in mind. You can do that for what, you know, when you look back at the end of the summer, the end of this, whatever it is, what do you want to see God do? That's living with the end in mind, right? We can ask this question about the whole of our lives. Then we live towards a certain end based upon all the little decisions that we make. If I keep an end in mind that I really want to head towards, it's going to affect the way that I live today because you're living towards some end. It's going to lead you somewhere. What end is it? So just ask yourself the question this morning, if I really believe that Jesus was coming back, would I change anything about how I'm living today? So if I'm living with the end in mind, then, then how then should we be living while we wait for Him to come back and take us into His everlasting party, right? Into His, his joy that He invites us into. We should be increasing our master's resources. We should be parlaying our five talents into ten or our two talents into four or our one into two whatever he's given us. So that means that our bodies are his. Our time is his, right? Our brains are his. Our families are his. Our jobs are his. Our education is his. Our friendships are his. Our neighborhoods are his. Our money is his. Our hobbies are his. Everything we have, everything that we are, came from him, belongs to him, is to be deployed for him. So these talents that I'm given as a servant of Jesus is not just a reference to money, it's actually a reference to literally everything that I have, that God has blessed me with. So what should I leverage all that I have for? Well, the answer is what the master's business is about. What's the master's business? What's he about, right? Well, it's about spreading the gospel. It's spreading the good news of what his son has accomplished for anyone who would repent of their slavery to sin and trust in Jesus as their new master. It's spreading the gospel of God's grace. That's what Jesus says three chapters later in Matthew, right before the man goes on his journey, before he ascends and does that, what does he say? Go and make disciples. He commissions them. That's what he does. It's the same book, just a few chapters later. Richard Sibbs, when he's thinking about this great commission, he's an old Puritan theologian, he says, uh, he puts it well, saying, the goodness of God is of a spreading nature. The goodness of God is spreading out further and further into the world today. That's what this life is for. It's to join with our risen master, Jesus, and spreading his goodness to more people. So that means when you're out mowing your lawn and you're interacting with your neighbors who are walking by, what's that moment about? It's about making more friends for Jesus, right? He's put neighbors into your life. When you're going to class and uh, you're getting connected maybe to extracurriculars and that sort of thing, like what's that about? It's introducing the university to Jesus. When you're signing a contract at work, what's that moment about? It's about building more credibility for Jesus because he worked that contract for you. When you're tucking your kids into bed at night and you're singing them, singing over them over to sleep, what's that moment about? It's about more of the love of Jesus going into their hearts because you're raising them for him. Until Jesus returns, this is how we live, and the Lord has given us this community even, the branch. It's his gift of grace to us to steward and multiply his gospel work in our lives 
into the lives of other people. This is his grace, giving and giving and giving. He's not wasting his giving, and he won't waste his giving. And all this giving and giving is so that in the end, when he returns, we can enter into that joy. So the first thing we do is we live with the end in mind. The second thing, though, is that we now are people who are willing to risk everything for the sake of Jesus. We live with the end in mind. We know the end is coming. But then we risk everything for the sake of Jesus. Because it's all His, right? It's all His. And you already have Him. When you know who Jesus really is and that all you have comes from Him, and that He's coming back, you will take risks for Him. Why? Because you're playing with house money, right? So in the short, risk everything for Jesus. He's worth it. And it's all His anyway. Just think about how anti-American, how anti-Corvallis is this parable to a degree, right? How anti is it? I mean, as Americans, we will do anything to guarantee our safety, just anything at all, right? To protect ourselves from loss. I mean, we're even afraid even to love people because of the pain that could come from that. We're afraid to live in certain areas because of fear of our lives. We make thousands of decisions Every day, based upon safety, Corvallis is written as one of the top 10 places to raise a family in this country. Did you know that? One of the top 10 places to raise a family. You want to know why? Because it's also one of the top 10 most safest cities in America. Like our number one crime is bike theft, you know? Doesn't sound that dangerous. Right? It's, it's, it's a pretty safe place, even like natural disaster-wise. It's like extremely safe. I mean, I know you're waiting for the big one, but whatever. You know, it's, there's not a lot of natural disasters, okay? We are risk-averse. A lot of people move here to avoid some of these things. See, we think risk is only for, like, the people with the crazy personalities that you meet, and you're like, yeah, buddy, have fun with that. You know, tell me how it goes. That's how we think. Guys, fear is a powerful influence, and it starts young in our lives. It really does. So why didn't servant number three invest his one talent? It was fear, fear of the risk. Verse 25, I was afraid. I was afraid. Risking it was too costly in his, in his mind. So let me just ask you, what are the risks to which God might be calling you into? That you're rationalizing under the banner of safety. Maybe it's a new ministry that God's put on your heart. I love seeing... Um, I didn't, sorry, Sam, I didn't ask you if I do this, but like Sam Lundy, get up here this year and talk about her heart to start a refuge group, Mending the Soul, for people who have been abused or want to help people of abuse. Like, I know that's a risk to step out and say, I want to do this. And it's just beautiful to see the way people are responding to that. Maybe it's a risk in div- having a divinely directed career change in your life. Maybe it's taking your career overseas or something even as simple, I'm serious, as like hearing our UK team share and you're like, I should do that, but uh, vacation time and money, well, you know, and you just kind of like go on this little security trail or like rationalizing everything. Or maybe it's something closer to the heart. It's just the risk of actually forgiving somebody you need to forgive. And you're afraid of what will happen to my heart if I do that. What if it's as simple, seriously, as just like sharing the gospel with somebody? You're just like, oh, what the, what's that going to mean? And you actually do it, and you're like, oh, it's great. What if it's just reordering your marriage 
the way God designed marriage? What if it's just courageously waiting for God's choice in your marriage and refusing to compromise? What if it's obeying God in how you approach business and having the integrity that you need, but maybe other people just aren't showing that integrity? Let me ask you, is what you are doing with your life worthy of the price that Jesus paid? Is what you are living for worth him dying for? To be clear, we're not talking about having a hero complex, some like lust for adventure, this like bravado, or the need to actually earn God's love. That's not the stuff that compels you to take risks. It's just having faith in the ever-loving, ever-faithful Son of God, Jesus. If He's what I want, if He's who I love, if He's who I serve, then no matter what happens, I still have Him. And that makes me free completely and utterly free to live for the end, to live a pretty risky life. There's an old story. I really like it. I don't know if it's true. But it's a story about Abraham Lincoln. And maybe you've heard it. It's a story where he goes to an auction block where people are being sold as slaves. And he sees this woman who's being sold, auctioned off. And he's just horrified this is even happening. And so he starts bidding on her. And he bids until he wins her, right? And so he wins this woman, right? He, he wins the auction. And he goes up to her after, and he says to her, you're free. And she says, excuse me, what? What's that supposed to mean? He says, no, you're free. You're free. And she goes, you mean I can go do what I want to do and go where I want to go? And he goes, yeah, totally. And she says, then I'll go with you. If you think Abraham Lincoln, if that is even true, would be a good master, then my gosh, you guys. Guys, we were enslaved to our sin and Jesus purchased our freedom, not with money, not with his compassion, but with his blood. Like he bought you at a price. He is the absolute best master. You'll never find any master that's more sacrificial, that's more humble, that's more gracious. He's so worth it. He's worth your every breath. every obstacle of fear that keeps you from boldly following him and leveraging everything you have for his sake. Jesus is the best master to work for in all the universe. So until he returns, let's live like it. Let's all stand together and pray. Lord Jesus, uh, would you forgive us of our rebellious spirit? 
for how often we want to rule our own lives. We want to build our own kingdoms. We want to have things our way, the exact way we want them to be, and the time we want them to be. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to see what's really happening in this world, Lord, to, to see what's coming, that you're coming, Jesus. Lord, I pray we live like you're coming, that we be excited for that day. Thank you for your grace, for inviting us into this relationship with you, Lord. I pray that we would joyfully follow you in this life, listening to your voice, knowing that whatever you're calling us into, you're going to walk with us through it. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.